I just want to put a name to you and see where you put that. What's your opinion of X copy? Where does he fit? I'm not going to name names. You know, I respect all artists and creators for doing their thing. I may not like what they do, but I can still respect them. And I wouldn't deign to kind of like name and shame people according to my kind of, that's for somebody else's job. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. everyone welcome to another episode of floor is rising with us today very special guest jehan chu jehan is chairman and founder of kinetic a crypto vc fund he's also the chairman co-founder of social alpha foundation his previous life he's worked at sotheby's he's also been an art dealer he got into crypto and bitcoin extremely early and because of his sort of dual background of being in art and also nfts is perfect guest for the show welcome to the show jayhan thanks for having me i really really appreciate it jayhan tell us how did you get into nfts i actually started in nfts through the, the kind of pure crypto route so i guess the first time i got into nfts was really through investing in decentraland uh, my firm kinetic we were basically the first vc blockchain vc in hong kong and one of the earliest in asia back in 2016 and we were seed investors in Decentraland, which, you know, as, as your listeners know, is the decentralized metaverse, the first decentralized metaverse. We bought into that first kind of crowd sale, and we actually ended up spending the, the majority of our mana back at that time on the initial land sale from Decentraland. And I believe that was back in 2017. So those were some of the earliest, certainly the earliest real estate NFTs. But that really forced us to kind of really look at how we should think about digital assets and value, especially as it comes to the real estate format. And we actually did a lot of work to try and establish value and figure out how it mapped to uh, real world real estate kind of fundamentals and investment strategy. And that was really the beginning. And then from there, obviously, I looked at CryptoKitties, although I wasn't a huge CryptoKitties person. Uh, I was very aware of kind of what was happening in that space. But it was really Decentraland that kind of got me into it. I heard a story that you bought Vitalik his first crypto kitty. Is that true? I'm pretty sure it was his first one. Yeah, this is a long, long time ago. I founded the Ethereum meetup in Hong Kong back in 2014. Through running that meetup, I had the good fortune to be able to host Vitalik, I think about 14, 13 or 14 times throughout the history of, of me running the meetup. And, you know, so we had a, a really good relationship. You know, when this whole CryptoKitties thing came out, I'd, I'd bought him uh, a CryptoKitties as a, as a gift. Uh, I think it was his first one, yeah. So one of the things that, you know, I've heard uh, anecdotally is that a lot of traditional art folks, trad art, so to speak, they really kind of can't deal with the dominant aesthetics that we find, uh, whether it's a PFP project, maybe less so with the generative art. But I think that the public image, I think, of NFT art at the moment is, you know, punks, kitties, board apes. So what would you say to, or what have you said to your uh, so-called trad art colleagues when it comes to their skepticism regarding that aesthetic? Or have you actually tried to paint it as something entirely separate from contemporary art or the traditional art world? 
Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. Let me back up and introduce a bit about my background for your, for your listeners so they kind of have a sense of where, where I'm coming from in terms of some of these thoughts. I actually started off as a front-end developer. So I was you know, coding HTML back in the first kind of dot-com boom. And then I was freelancing on the weekends, just you know, building websites and, and kind of doing code for Sotheby's. And that's actually how I got recruited into Sotheby's to help them launch their online auctions. And so I stayed at Sotheby's in New York in the technology department, doing online auctions for a number of years, uh, moved around to the business analysis side. And then they, in 2006, they moved me out to Hong Kong to help expand the office. And that was right during the kind of Chinese contemporary art boom, when Asian contemporary art was really starting to not just be put on the map, but really starting to kind of dominate a lot of the, the transactions in the space. And there's a lot of energy uh, and money around it. Fast forward to 2008, I left Sotheby's and became an art dealer. So that was really the the kind of second phase of my art career where I was fully immersed in the kind of contemporary art world. And what a dealer does is it's kind of a catch-all name. Uh, a dealer could be a gallerist, but for me, I was an art advisor. And what I would do would, would be to basically help collectors, art collectors, understand and collect, uh, and also to some degree invest in contemporary art. A lot of, I would say, people that have the means to buy top-level, top-tier contemporary art don't necessarily have the time to look at everything, to understand everything. And so as an advisor, my job is to basically narrow it down for them. And the way that I did this was, you know, and a lot of my clients were, you know, bankers or, uh, you know, family offices, people that were successful in other areas of life and, you know, didn't focus on art. But the way that I would advise them, um, which is also the way that I collect art, which might be helpful to, to understand, is that I would first kind of look at the critical importance of the artwork. So there, there's three kind of pillars here. One is the critical importance. Two is the kind of market position. And then three is your personal relationship to the art. So the first part is, you know, does it have critical significance? Is this important? Is this art going to, you know, stand the test of time? Does it have novel ideas that are, that there is consensus that this work is, is important or has something valuable beyond just the aesthetics uh, and is bringing something to the conversation and discourse of contemporary art. So that's the critical side. And that's a really tough one. And the way that you measure that is through how many curators or writers or exhibitions is this you know, art being included in. So that's the first part. The second part is the secondary market. Anybody, anybody can sell a piece of art once. That doesn't establish its value. The secondary trade, that second sale, that's what really establishes, okay, well, it wasn't a fluke. There's actually a market for this art. And so my job is to figure out, well, does this artist or this artwork have a secondary market? And if not, if it's very early, does it have the potential? Does it have the markings to have a robust secondary market? Could it potentially become, you know, a, a Jonas Wood or a Harold Ankart, much less uh, a Warhol or a Basquiat. And so because I came from the auction space, uh, I had a, an eye uh, and an understanding and a framework for understanding which artists would kind of have that potential. But then the most important, that third pillar is like, do you like it? Is there a personal connection for you in that artwork such that if the you know column A and column B go to zero, if it's not important, if the artist is not important and the price goes to zero, do you still value it as a person? Does it still say something to you in your life? Is it still something you want to wake up to? So the ideal piece of artwork fits all three of those. But again, like these are busy people who don't have the time for this. So what I would do would be, I would pre-select work that fit into bucket A and bucket B 
has critical importance and has the potential, has a secondary market or potential for a secondary market. And then I would show it to my clients. I would talk to them about it. We would see the work in person and they would find, you know, whichever work resonated or didn't resonate with them. And that's how we would choose. So that kind of is a really interesting framework for me looking at NFTs because it's the exact same thing. So for me, and, you know, just fast forward after I was an art dealer, 2016, 2013, I got into crypto. 2016, I started my firm Kinetic and and left the art world professionally, although I still collect uh, and I still work with a lot of uh, artists. So I work directly with people. I work with the Anadol. I work with Ash Thorpe. I work with Andre Reisinger and I help them, you know, to just share some of my insights in the contemporary art world and, and network and relationships and Really happy that just a shout out to Mike Beeple. His first contemporary art gallery show is actually launching on Thursday in two days. So anybody who's in New York, uh, I don't know when this is going to be released, but anybody in New York, please come and see the show. It's at Jack Hanley Gallery uh, on Dwayne Street in Tribeca. So I'll pause there. There's a lot of information there, but just to give you a sense of you know how I think about contemporary art as a, as a backdrop for, for the NFTs. I think it's a great framework. How do you see that applying to NFTs in the sense that especially sort of category A, which is sort of the critical part in the sense that in traditional art, contemporary art, there's a lot of sort of institutions, museums, you know, publications, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that we'll lean on the existing sort of institutions in in sort of traditional art, contemporary art, who will sort of come over to NFTs and sort of exert their influence in the NFT world as well? But I think, first of all, we need to go back a bit and, and just break down, like, what are we talking about when we, we're talking about NFTs, right? Because NFTs are not NFTs. There's fine art NFTs, there's design NFTs, there's PFPs, there's gaming, et cetera. So let's just put aside the easy ones, right? We're not talking about gaming NFTs or virtual item metaverse world NFTs, right? Let's just put aside like skins, shirts, shoes, all this kind of stuff. But what about PFPs? Are PFPs art? I don't think so. I have a, a pretty narrow and rigorous definition of kind of art versus PFPs. I personally see PFPs more as collectibles. And collectibles are not, collectibles are different than art, different than fine art, let's say. So collectibles, I would say, you know, like apes and punks, these are, these are a combination of self-expression and kind of community, kind of property, community uh, membership. In some cases, they are artistic, take like art blocks and this whole idea of generative art, where I think that they're, they're starting to kind of cross over the idea of like algorithm as art. I do think that's a legitimate art form. And so I would argue that maybe art blocks are closer to art. But I don't think most people would, would kind of say that bored apes are art. I would say that most people would say that they're artistic and they're creative, but I don't think that there's... I don't think it was even the kind of intention of the artists who made the board apes to engage the contemporary art world in the dialogue that is the basis of contemporary art, which is what is art. So I just don't think that was their intent. And that's the main reason why I don't think it, it is, you know, fine art. So let's put that aside. When I'm talking about NFTs and fine art, and that is what I focus on, we're really talking about this notion of art making, regardless of whether it's comes from a crypto, you know, a crypto native or a trad art, traditional art native that engages like the medium, not even just NFTs, but just kind of decentralization and blockchain generally, right? So I think that's kind of like the setting for it. And to your question about the NFT side of things, I mean, I think that it's important to, I think that a lot of the conversation and criticism from both sides 
gets lost in a misunderstanding of what we're talking about. Because I think most of the part, for the most part, when traditional art people are complaining that NFT art is, is bad, it's because they're looking at, you know, mutant apes and they're saying, well, this isn't art. And they're right. It's not art. It's creative. It's art. It's artistic, but it's not fine art. It was never intended to, to have that context. And that's the, that's the key word here. Context. The context for fine art is missing in the NFT space because the NFT space is too generalized. It's like, you know, NFT is not a, is not a, is not a meaningful designation except as a technological term. It has no relevance to like art, right? NFT art is not a thing. Art is a thing. Art that uses NFT technology is a thing in the same way that art that uses oil and canvas is also a thing. So you got to kind of break it down a little bit. And so, so much of the, I think the, the rhetoric and the complaint again on both sides is because both neither side knows what the other side is talking about because there is such a rift and a lack of understanding from the crypto world about what fine art is. And I would say even an active disrespect to, to want to learn what it is. I mean, I think a lot of the, the kind of, unfortunately, a lot of the kind of, I would say street rhetoric that I, that I hear is like, oh, we don't need museums. We don't need galleries. And we don't need some of these Christians to tell us like, what's good. You know, we're, we're disrupting the world. It's like, okay, well, maybe. I mean, the fine art institution has been around for literally thousands of years. So yeah, maybe you're going to overthrow that. But unlikely, I mean, just if you take like a sampling, I think you can contribute to it. That would be great. That's typically what every new art movement and every new art technology does. It contributes to the to the kind of continuum uh, and the discourse of art. But it's unlikely you're going to just kind of like completely, you know, overthrow it. And maybe if you understood like what actually, you know, museums do and the fine art institution does, you might respect it a bit more because ultimately museums and the fine art world are guardians of culture, right? Like that's what a museum is. I, I like to say that 99% of all art that's ever made is garbage waiting to happen. It just doesn't know that it's garbage yet. Because in three generations, if an artwork is not collected by a museum or a major private collection, it's literally thrown away, right? Because art has to go somewhere. The vast majority of art ends up in landfill. And it's only the you know, 0.0001% of art which is designated and recognized as contributing some type of critical perspective to the art world or to culture, will it be collected by a museum and then saved over hundreds and, and ideally over like thousands of years in some cases, right? So there's this kind of misunderstanding of what the role of, of fine art is. I think it's seen as like elitist and it's seen as just kind of exclusionary. When actually, yeah, it is exclusionary because you need to, you, you can't save 100% of art because it's not, A, it's not interesting or worth saving. And then B, there's just not enough physical space. The flip side of that is the traditional art don't understand like NFTs. They're just like, oh, well, this, this is uh, pixelated punks. That's not interesting from a you know, fine art discourse. It doesn't add anything to the, to the conversation. It's like, yeah, that's true. But you have to look at the underlying you know, kind of mechanisms around decentralization, around community ownership, around what artwork as a platform means and what that could then kind of contribute to the art world. So there's all these different dynamics, but everybody's just like talking past each other because nobody knows enough about what the other, you know, does, which I think goes away over time. Quick follow-up. Okay. I think you said Bored Apes is not art. Is CryptoPunks art? In my opinion. 
Yeah, is is CryptoPunks art? Um, I don't think so. I think it's artistic, but I don't think that it it is necessary trying to you know have a discourse with with fine art. I don't think that that's what its intent was. I would say that they're historical. I would say that they they're like the Bitcoin of NF of, of PFPs, right? They are the OG. They will forever be associated with the first generation of PFPs. They are the first generation of PFPs. So from a historical standpoint, you know, like the Model T or, you know, <laughs> right, something like that, like they're important. Like they birthed a generation to a degree, you know, regardless of whether they were actually the first one, they're recognized as the first one. Just like, you know, Bitcoin wasn't actually the first digital money, but it's recognized as the first, you know, significant digital money. I think that's, it has a place in history as a cultural signifier, but I don't think that it's, it has significance as a fine art signifier. There's like a fundamental dismissiveness, I think, on the part of um, a lot of people who are, have already accumulated that clout in the NFT art space, the OGs of crypto art. And it's not just the collectors, uh, not just the artists, right? It's, it's the collectors. And many times the biggest artists are the biggest collectors as well. So there seems to be like a, an overlapping of like vested interests there that would make it, to my mind, very difficult to open up that conversation. Yeah, I don't know if it, if it ever kind of clears out totally, because if you look at the general population, you know, forget about NFTs, just the general population, their familiarity and comfort with contemporary art is not that high. Everybody loves going to museums, but it's more because it's like a destination. But the, the average understanding of contemporary art and just even comfort, right, walking into a gallery and looking at something is not high. And so I think that that's really the, the bigger issue. And I think you see that even more pronounced in the kind of crypto space. I think we need to talk about money, too, uh, because what gives influence in the NFT kind of space without the context of what's important from a cultural standpoint, right? Without a MoMA, without a Tate, without you know, a Smithsonian, how do we know what's important? Why is this NFT more important than this NFT? It's because of its price, right? To some degree, there's social signaling in the sense that like, well, if Jimmy Fallon gets an, an ape, well, that's more important than you know, XYZ kind of PFP where you know, there's no Jimmy Fallon. So there's a social signaling, there's a, there's a celebrity and an influencer kind of signaling. But other than that, I would, I would argue that it's mostly about money. These NFT uh, kind of collections are important because they're expensive. And I think that's a bit of a kind of a hollow foundation, a relatively, I would say, unstable foundation for the basis and hierarchy of what's important in the NFT world. Because markets go up and down. Uh, and we've seen like CryptoPunks used to be number one. Now they're like arguably number two, right? Because the prices have gone down. I would say maybe community is also another maybe fundamental for these kind of PFPs. But again, I think there's a unique danger there that as more PFPs come into play, it actually dilutes the engagement and commitment of some of these communities because they're involved in a lot of different communities and you can't, you know, be as active in all these communities as, you know, as when there were only like a handful of PFP projects. And so that community engagement is, is diluted too. So it's, I think it's quite, quite a precarious position for a lot of these, for a lot of these PFP projects and the fundamental value of these 
is less stable. So I think that, you know, we have to kind of understand how these things are like the, the context of value for, for PFPs. Whereas in the art world, I would say that there's a lot more like well-established and, and kind of well-recognized and broader understanding and acceptance for what constitutes value. And I think that's why these kind of museums are, are quite important. But without that, there's no, without any kind of better, better compass or better signal than, well, it's expensive, therefore it's important. I think that the NFT world is, is pretty, it's on a very weak foundation. I think eventually over time, and it just takes time, right? For there to be more understanding, like a deeper understanding of like, why are these apes valuable? Oh, it's because, you know, they represent this particular, you know, snapshot of time when people were starting to really explore this, this thing. And, and, you know, CryptoPunks are important because they were the first to do this. And all of the cultural side of it, like, actually, why does any art have value? It's because it's culturally valuable. It's culturally significant. And we haven't really established that over time with PFPs and NFTs, but we absolutely have established that, you know, art is valuable to, you know, is culturally valuable. And so I think that's really the gap. Actually, I'm just kind of like thinking this through my head. That's the basic gap. There needs to be more broader understanding of the cultural significance of NFTs and acceptance beyond the kind of NFT community. And that is what's missing. And that comes through time, exhibitions, critical examination, writing, academia, et cetera, all the things which kind of fill in this, this kind of hollow shell beyond, oh, it's, you know, floor prices like, you know, 95 ETH, whatever. That's very empty. I see that there is this delineation uh, in the, I guess what you call the, the fine art NFT world between artists who basically made their name in crypto art and then artists who made their name outside of crypto art and then came into NFTs, right? And so people, so Mike Winkleman was was an artist who, who predominantly made their, I guess, their name outside of the NFT world, came into the NFTs in uh, 2020. But there, there is this sort of sectarianism, what I see in, in some NFT sort of art circles where people are really trying to hold on to, I guess, you know, OG status, right? Some artists sort of came up through the, you know, early 2018, 2019, and sort of made their name within crypto art and the tension versus artists who, you know, I mean, there's a ton of artists coming into NFTs now who sort of made their name outside of um, sort of NFTs and coming in. How do you view that tension? Do you even think there is a tension? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, the NFT world is actually not filled with a lot of artists. It's filled with a lot of designers, which makes sense, right? Because graphic design is is really the you know the the basic entry into into making NFTs. It's it's like the HTML of NFTs. If you can kind of make that analogy, if you know graphic design, you can make you know an NFT. On the contrary, like if you don't know graphic design, if you don't know the kind of tools, and all you know is you know paint and brush or charcoal, then like you're not making NFTs, right? So it, it makes sense that the initial generation of you know nft artists in, in quotations is actually are actually graphic designers and and to be fair that's what mike you know beeple was that's what uh, you know ash thorpe was these are extremely high level millions of followers over years decade over a decade actually but just practicing their craft of you know motion graphics or design and so that's that's really where a lot of the the initial artists come from they don't necessarily come from a fine art 
background. They didn't necessarily go to like a fine arts school and study studio practice and, and kind of do all that stuff. So I think that the artists that came up in that early generation, especially the ones that got popular uh, without naming names, I think they're more graphic designers. And I think that there is starting to be a separation between good designers and good artists. And for me, the reason why I work with Mike uh, and the reason why I work with, you know, like Rafiq Anadol is because they're good artists. They think about, they have a critical reading of culture. Like Mike is actually like a, it's in some ways he's almost a, uh, like an extremely sophisticated cartoonist because what he's doing underneath like his, his obviously incredible technical talent, he's actually doing satire. Uh, in the same way that, you know, some other cartoonists like in like an R. Crumb or or others are looking at society. And in Mike's case, he specializes in pop culture and you know, kind of global events. And he kind of applies like a, a critical reading onto it. And then he expresses it, you know, with his graphic design. That is a, a time honored tradition that is a, a, a well examined and, you know, interesting, you know, kind of vein to be, you know, making fine art under. And that's ultimately what I think that he's doing and why, why I, I'm interested in support and collect you know, his work extensively. But I don't see that in a lot of the other, necessarily in, in a lot of the other artists that are out there, that there are definitely exceptions um, you know, out there. Like I think, you know, like Josh Davis is super interesting. Brendan Dawes is super interesting and, and, and many others. But there are other artists who are just kind of making cool pictures, like cool graphics, and because they were in that first generation of NFT artists, and because a lot of the people that were buying NFTs were A, extremely, you know, kind of ETH rich, and B, quite young, uh, hadn't, don't really have a full kind of formed palette for art. I think a lot of these early graphic designer artists like did really well in NFTs, and they made a lot of money. And, you know, even now their, their NFTs sell for a lot of money. But that goes back to exactly what I was saying before. There's a lot of expensive stuff that is conflated with being important, but it's not important. It's just expensive. And if the market drops out, these things have no other kind of value to them because they're not accepted. And they're, I would say not even not accepted. They're not recognized as having a value beyond the kind of aesthetic and price. But without that, there's not a whole lot of significance to the art. And that, that kind of art doesn't last like that kind of art gets lost in, in, a, in a generation as well because it's largely dependent on very kind of flaky kind of signals. I just want to put a name to you and see where you put that. At. What's your opinion of X copy? Where does he fit? I'm not going to name names. I don't, I don't think it's, you know, I respect all artists and creators for doing their thing. I may not like what they do, but I can still respect them. And I, I, would, I wouldn't deign to kind of like start to like name and shame people according to my kind of, that's for somebody else's job. I think that it's great that people are creating work but again, it's not just up to me, right? It's, it's up to the consensus of collectors and institutions. And what we're seeing right now is a glut of graphic design in the NFT world. And I would argue that most people don't know what's good and what's bad. They know what's expensive and they know what you know, influencers are talking about, but they don't actually know what's good. And I think that at some point, this, and I think this goes back to one of your questions before, like there will be the, the kind of infrastructure and context which starts to kind of separate some of this stuff. Right now, it's, not, it's just not there. It's typically the job of, you know, kind of cultural interpreters to take a, a very, very long perspective and look at the kind of work and look at the practice from a distance 
to put it into context of you know these you know decades or even centuries long arcs of culture that's what is kind of important right having a place in this continuum that's what makes culture and to a more narrow degree art important so i think that you know there's a lot of artists that are there that don't they actually they actually don't know that the work that they're making is not relevant to a broader conversation because in many cases like they've never been educated in art history they've never been educated in, in even design history and so they're not aware of anything other than hey i made this cool thing and jesus somebody's paying me you know like 10 eth for it that is kind of the current situation of i would say 95% of you know the nft space and partially because again it's these a lot of it does tend to be these collectibles which you know it's not really intended to be art anyway you know it takes time to build a consensus about what's valuable and what's significant especially in a in a critical sense and there's a way in which i think the surplus capital that's flowing around and and funding a lot of the nft art has distorted the picture the way in which uh, the collector functions and supplies that support to the artists in the nft space over the past 3-4 years <clears throat> i think has something i mean there's something qualitatively very different about that support and and the way in which i guess uh, it shows an endorsement of what's considered significant for for the nft art space yeah it's i i think you're 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 kind of looking at it in the right way it's a it's a very kind of ambitious new space and kind of creative you know platform that we're on right now right this whole nft space but there's just I think people are expecting too much too soon including myself we're impatient especially because like we're used to this crypto moving so quickly but it's just a fact that art schools I I was on this kind of accreditation committee for a, a university in Hong Kong an art school in Hong Kong an, an arts program in Hong Kong um because they wanted to do something in metaverse they they wanted to do like a, an art and technology you know major for for their undergrad and so with like where they you know I had to I I had to look through the entire you know curriculum for this course this four year course and there was one class for blockchain now i was like i mean you guys are are so behind already and so that that's just to say that in order for us to bridge this gap there must be education in the art schools as well to understand not just the tools but the ideas and the concepts that make you know nft based art or the nft medium kind of different and distinct from the mediums that came before it that's just pure education that needs that needs to be done otherwise what you have are you have a lot of these kind of artists that are having a, a more traditional studio practice of art and training in art graduating having no idea like what an nft is and then they have to you know read articles and da, da, da. they're just not they're just not taught they're not educated and that's a problem because that means the only people that are making you know the vast majority of people that are making art are people that are familiar with the tool sets you know photoshop or you know illustrator or whatever and they don't necessarily have as much of the the kind of critical education that includes like a, a fine art uh and like a historical understanding of like art history and 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 studio practice that goes into making more rigorous art because that's what it boils down to most of the nft fine art that's made is not very good partially because the really good artists aren't making nfts and the people that are making nfts aren't really good artists can i ask you who your favorite artist is there are artists i would say who over time i think speak to me in different ways there's i'll give you a bunch of artists that i love 
There's an artist named Chris Hune, H-U-E-N. He's a Hong Kong painter. He's an oil painter who, who's kind of practice references like the short kind of staccato strokes of, of calligraphy, but he's making these beautiful like landscapes and kind of personal documentary. There's an artist named the King of Kowloon, who is a Hong Kong street artist, probably one of the first street artists to ever make graffiti in the streets. This is 1955. He was kind of a, an outsider artist. So he would just write these, you know, 10 meter long tracts of Chinese characters on walls and on streets protesting, you know, what he saw as the, the kind of theft of the land of Hong Kong or the land of Kowloon, which he believed was his. And so really like a monumental figure, which, you know, captured like this collective moment of history of Hong Kong for, for about 30 years. He died penniless, you know, destitute, but he still is one of the most rec- visually recognizable kind of features of, the, of, you know, a good like 30 years of, of Hong Kong's history. I love Rafiq Anadol. I think what Rafiq is doing is pioneering a new experience of art, immersive art, taking almost like a, a full body, full sensory approach to, to uh, art. I collected his first immersive room, which was sold by Sotheby's at the Digital Art Fair in Hong Kong, which I'm an investor in. I think that what he's doing is incredibly important uh, and is increasingly being recognized by fine art institutions, but also he's got an incredible amount of you know, crypto cred. And then of course, uh, Ash Thorpe, who I think is incredibly underrated as an artist and is making you know, some of the finest kind of digital pieces, like kind of digital art out there. Like I said, Andre Reisinger, who's kind of blending an, a notion of traditional design and interior, but in a way which you know, has like a critical examination of it, uh, as we talked about before. Uh, and then, of course, Beeple. I mean, I literally, I think that, you know, Beeple's Human One Piece, the one that was sold at Christie's for, to Ryan Zurer, who's a great collector and a great friend at uh, Christie's for $29 million. Like, I think that's the most important piece of art in the last 20 years because it very acutely blends digital and physical and, you know, includes this notion of time, uh, an artwork that's updated and can respond to cultural history in, in real time over the course of the artist's lifetime, I think is, is, is brilliant. And it's, it's something that we haven't seen before, which hasn't been possible before because of te- technological limitations. And I, I really do think that Mike is one of the most important and most exciting fine artists to emerge out of the kind of crypto genre. Um, and I think that he'll be you know, one of the most important kind of crossovers uh, into that space. And, and I do think that he'll stand the test of time and as will all these others. So those would be my kind of top, top handful. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jehan, for uh, coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow. And give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at floor is rising.